0: Um, I'd like to start just by saying something about authority. And I feel that probably most religious traditions um, tend towards a rather absolute sense of authority. In other words, the teachings, be be they those of Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, um, are understood to have come from some sort of unimpeachable source on high. That could be God, or in the case of Buddhism, the Buddha himself. Or if not the Buddha as the historical figure, then either something like the Dharmakaya, which looks suspiciously a bit like God, or a lineage of completely enlightened teachers or masters who have faithfully handed down the the, 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 the truth or the reality that's been awoken to um, in a pure way is usually the rhetoric. Now where that places us as the as the student, the practitioner, the learner of that tradition is in a very passive position our task really is simply to receive this imparted wisdom or knowledge and uh, to accept it with relatively little demur and try to realize those truths within ourselves we're not really considered to be active agents in this process but really uh, vessels that should be um, open to receive. And in fact, in one of the, one of the metaphors you find in the Lamrim in the Tibetan tradition, you should, you should be like a bowl that's not solid with dirt. You should not be like a bowl that is upside down. And there's one other, a bowl that is too full or something, I can't remember. But in any place, the, the idea of a bowl, let's face it, is not an image of some dynamic interaction with something. It's a vessel. You're a recipient. Um, You have this image in in Tibetan Buddhism. The the, the lama uh, produces uh, disciples in the same way that uh, a maker of um, clay votive tablets stamps out numerous copies uh, these are these little clay images you see often in uh, Himalayan cultures, little images of the Buddha or Padmasambhava that have been stamped out of a mould. So the good teacher is the person who's a- a- able to go thwonk, 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 and producing nice little kind of cloned copies of, of the Buddha or himself. In other words, again, it's very much a, uh, a passive relationship. And this um, sense of authority, likewise, is reinforced by all manner of of strategies and means. Um, When you go into a room and there's a big throne at the front and uh, there's someone sitting on it with robes and a shaven head and is attended very devoutly by uh, disciples and people bow full-length on the floor and don't make any noise or ask difficult questions, there's very much an environment in which um, the the, the authority behind what is said is granted even greater force. And very often, um, no matter what uh, doubts or or queries one might have about what is being presented, uh, you feel somehow... Um, unqualified or uh, not enlightened enough or basically deluded uh, in such a way that you're unlikely to really challenge or stand up to uh, anything that's coming from such a source. But that model, to me, seems to be uh, at odds with the way the Buddha describes Although tradition describes his own awakening. Uh, in one of the questions we had yesterday um, about conditionality or paticca samupada, however we translate that, life in its loosest term, is that we're not, uh, the awakening was not to some uh, state of affairs that described the world accurately, but it was rather an awakening to. Uh, a principle that was dynamic and led to other possibilities. In other words, conditioned arising is not a static fact at all. Uh, in fact, the very idea of, of causality implies movement, motion, planting seeds to reap results, uh, performing acts in order to make a difference, to make a change. There's something dynamic about this process. And I think a a good example of that um, is found uh, when the Buddha himself speaks of of karma, uh, of action. Again, he doesn't see it as a kind of fatalistic doctrine, but... Mm. And I'll read out a passage here. This is from the the Sutta Nipata, which, if you haven't read this text, I very much encourage you to do so. It's it's considered both by tradition and by modern scholars to be the earliest layer within the Pali canon. The Sutta Nipata. Sutta, S-U-T-T-A, Nipata, N-I-P-A-T-A. It's about 900 verses. It's quite short. And this is one of them. By action, karma is one, a farmer. By action, a craftsman. By action, a merchant. By action, a servant. The word action, remember, is karma. Karma. It doesn't mean you're a soldier because of your karma. But actually, you are a soldier because of what you do. You are a merchant because of what you do. By action is one a thief. By action is one a priest. By action is one a ruler. In this way, the wise see action as it happens or takes place. And thus seeing conditioned arising, one understands the effects of one's acts. There's a very clear a linkage here between the idea of conditionality or conditioned arising and the recognition of the consequences of what you do. Now we have to put this in context. Um, In context, this is a critique of a static form of social organization that was in place at the Buddha's time and unfortunately is still in place in India today namely the doctrine of caste, that your identity, whether you are a farmer or a merchant or a craftsman or a soldier or a priest, is determined by um, your birth. It is somehow divinely ordained. Now what the Buddha seems to be doing, and this is not the only passage in which he uh, attacks the, the current uh, social order of his time, is to say no. It's not divinely ordained at all. You uh, become a farmer or a craftsman or a merchant or a servant because of your choices, because of your acts. Arguably one of the most uh, revolutionary ideas the Buddha introduced into India was the idea that action is uh, intention. In other words, uh, your own choices and decisions lead to the acts that you perform and those acts then carve or create your identity in the world. Now we're going to come back to that uh, particular point uh, later on, so I'm not going to dwell on that now. But the, the relevance I want to draw from it now is to show that this whole idea of, of conditionality a waking to conditionality is not a waking up to some revelation of causality in some kind of mystical sense but rather it's waking up to the fact that you can change that you can act differently you can do something else and that can actually be effective so when we think of of Buddhism too Buddhism too I don't feel at all to be a static thing and the Buddhist truths to be absolute realities that are passed down through generations but rather Buddhism too is what it is because of what people do and my own sense both looking at the tradition historically and looking at the condition of the tradition today is that this is a a way of living, a way of thinking, a a body of ideas that has not yet exhausted its capacity to tell new stories about itself. And in a way, every Buddhist tradition is in fact another way in which Buddhists tell the story to themselves of what Buddhism is. Buddhism is a product, therefore, of the human imagination. There is no such thing as Buddhism. It is a story. It's a narrative. It's an account that makes sense and is useful and works in particular situations and environments. So in this way, I think we can say that awakening is not a state, but it is a process. It's not something that occurs in some bells and whistles moment. Kapow. There may be such moments in one's practice. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But to reduce the idea of bodhi or awakening to some kind of uh, transcendental insight into some ultimate reality, I don't think is what the Buddha meant at all. Uh, That may be the case in other Indian traditions. I mean, one has, for example, Shankara, uh, the founder of the Advaita Vedanta school, fami- famously says, Brahman Satyam Mityam. God is truth, the world is falsity. Now, when the Buddha uses the word truth, he doesn't use it in that sense at all. As we'll see, he has four truths, not just one. And certainly he doesn't suggest that there is some kind of ultimate truth by waking up to which you get in touch with reality and thereby recognize that the world, by comparison, is illusory, fictional. And yet very often Buddhism today is presented in that way. But that, I think, is again a a slippage back into certain very deeply attractive assumptions as to what religious or mystical experience is about. But the Buddha seems to be breaking with that in a very consistent way. One of the uh, doctrines that I find particularly valuable is that of the three kaya, or the three bodies of the Buddha. We find this, there are hints of it in the early canon, but it only gets developed in Mahayana Buddhism. And there you have the idea that the awakening is something that may start at some deeply personal, intuitive insight you have gained yourself. But for it to become complete, for it to become uh, a a real um, awakening, it requires that that inner understanding be translated through ideas and thoughts and, and, and language into something that becomes effective in the world itself. In other words, there's a movement from formlessness through ideas into actions. Technically, this is called dharmakaya, sambhogakaya and nirmanakaya. I'm not going to get into this, it's too a little bit technically complicated, but the idea um, is one that the, uh, the awakening only becomes complete when it has found form and expression in the world of others, when it's uh, been vocalized or embodied in some way. And so this again quite clearly points to how we're uh, talking here about a process rather than some kind of private mystical state. And this picture, that doctrine, mirrors quite precisely what in fact occurs, as the tradition uh, presents it, uh, to the Buddha himself. We have the experience of the awakening under the Bodhi tree, which we spoke of yesterday, this, this waking up to conditionality, But, of course, from this perspective in which one's no longer determined or driven by one's likes, one's dislikes, one's attachments, one's aversions, those things have somehow stopped. They're no longer determining of your vision, of your view. You've somehow freed yourself from those to see the world, as it were, as a process of conditional events of which you are able to uh, participate in through your acts. Now what's, um, if you remember yesterday, um, the book and everything is upside down. Um, When the Buddha, uh, at the end of the passage we looked at yesterday, um, the Buddha says, were I to teach the Dharma, and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. So the initial response to this breakthrough, this this enlightenment, was, I'm not going to go any further with this. Uh, This is going to be too much of a hassle. And so, according to tradition, he spends another six weeks beneath the Bodhi tree, just sort of, we don't know quite what he does, really. But... um, (laughs) Absorbed in the liberation of Nibbana, let's say, um, in in a kind of ecstatic condition. Um, and then the the again the the style of the text abruptly changes from being quite you know quite empirical. And then suddenly the god Brahma appears. And Brahma, Brahma Sahampati, he's a subset of Brahma appears before the Buddha and says to him there are people out there with little dust on their eyes they would understand what, you have, what you've experienced and this serves as a kind of a prompt now personally I don't believe I don't live in a world where gods come down from the heaven and, 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 and start speaking to me and saying come on sunshine get a move on <laughs> this, this <laughs> This is not the kind of reality that I know. Um, so we have to perhaps look at that passage and read it more symbolically. <clears throat> I understand it as the first stirrings within the Buddha's own mind of the, the impulse, uh, or one could even say the imperative to act. Now, Brahma in uh, Hindu cosmology is often spoken of as the creator of the world. Brahma symbolizes bringing something into being. Brahma also, in Buddhism, um, is, is, it occurs in this term, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, as they're sometimes called, which are Metta, Karuna, Upeka, and Mudita, loving-kindness, Compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So, Brahma also stands for um, essentially uh, love, compassion, which is again a quality of mind that's not obviously purely self referring, but is opening and is concerned with the suffering of others. And it's through the intervention of Brahma or we might say the first stirrings of that sense of responsibility in Siddhartha Gautama's consciousness, that he then says, well, wait a minute, maybe these five guys I was doing ascetic practices with, they'd understand. They were pretty bright. And so he gets up from his seat and he leaves Bodhgaya, or Uruvela, as it was called then, and heads off for Varanasi, which even in the Buddha's day was the holy site of the Brahmanic tradition. And it's there that he finds his um, five former companions and he begins to speak. So we can see here also this this dharmakaya, this this, this deep intuitive wake-up, insight, revelation, or whatever it was, followed by... Uh, the first stirring or the first idea of of doing something motivated by love and then the actual getting up going somewhere encountering a group of people and speaking to them and I don't think it's accidental that when you come to the end of the first sermon it's only then that the Buddha uh, 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 affirms that he has achieved a peerless awakening in this world with its men and its gods its devils and its priests in the passage we read yesterday the word awakening isn't used and so this suggests at least in my rather convoluted reading of it that this process of awakening only actually becomes uh, complete or is achieved through the articulation of ideas to other people. And we find, therefore, in the, uh, in, in this first sermon, um, I think a very succinct account of what uh, the Buddha's uh, teaching is all about. Now, the core of this Um, concerns the Four Noble Truths. Now, again, we have a similar problem. The Four Noble Truths are very usually presented in books on Buddhism as four, um, four truth claims, four propositions. Life is suffering, one. The origin of suffering is craving, two. Nirvana is the end of suffering, three. And the eightfold path is what leads to the end of suffering, four. That's the classical presentation. But again, you can see already that we're now no longer in the realm of of, of actions, things to be done, but rather we're put in the position of having to accept or not accept four claims to what is true. So it becomes again... Uh, doctrinal or dogmatic rather than practical and functional. But when we look at the Buddha's account of these truths they actually are presented not as uh, as statements but actually as tasks to be performed. They are things to do. And so if, you, if I read out the um, the actual text itself when the Buddha describes his awakening uh, he says as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the four noble truths I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials etc. So we don't have to go very far To find um, a very clear definition of what awakening means. And it's a little puzzling in a way that so much uh, discussion continues to go on and so much confusion seems to be around this idea. And yet, if we go to the concluding paragraph of the Buddha's own first discourse, we find a completely unambiguous definition of what awakening consists of? Basically, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the 12 aspects of the four truths. Now, what are these 12 aspects? There are four truths, and each of them has three aspects. And the aspects are, I'll explain, recognition, Performance and accomplishment. Recognition, each truth has to be recognized, it then has to be performed, has to be done, and that action one then seeks to accomplish or complete that action. So the first truth is uh, the truth of dukkha, suffering, and suffering needs to be recognized. And then something needs to be done about it. And in this case, the uh, suffering is to be embraced, or literally fully known. And one seeks, therefore, to achieve that, to fully know dukkha. The second truth is craving. This is something that needs to be recognized within oneself, this grasping, clutching, craving. And then something has to be done about it. In this case, craving is to be let go of, relinquished, dropped. That's what one then seeks to accomplish, the dropping, the letting go of craving. The third truth is stopping or nirvana, cessation. And when the Buddha describes what he means by that, he says it's the cessation of craving, the cessation of grasping. He doesn't say the cessation of suffering. That's important. And this is, again, a huge problem. The cessation of craving also calls forth for us to do something about it. And the Buddha's suggestion is that we experience it. The word literally means in Pali, we see it with our own eyes. We experience that stopping directly. We actually know that for ourselves. And that's the task we set ourselves, to really have an experience of the stopping of that grasping. And fourthly, the fourth truth is the eightfold path. And this is something that also requires that we do something about it. The Eightfold Path is to be cultivated, to be created, to be cultivated. The word is bhavana, which means to bring something into being, literally, which is, in English, we'd say to create. The path doesn't just lie ahead of us and we just passively walk down it. A path is something that is an ongoing challenge to maintain, to bring into being, to open up. And we have to remember, too, that the Eightfold Path is not just concerning our overtly spiritual life. It concerns the whole of our human existence, how we see and think about things, how we communicate, how we act in the world, how we work, how we make our livelihood, how we focus our energies, how we make effort, resolve, how we attend or pay attention through mindfulness how we focus through concentration, all of that is in the Eightfold Path. So one thing I think becomes quite clear is this awakening is quite definitely not an awakening to some uh, singular truth, some singularity, like emptiness or not-self or nirvana or the deathless. None of these terms even occur in this text. The Buddha quite clearly says that the awakening is, the, uh, is, is, is rooted in a, in a, not just in a single task but in a complex sequence of tasks. Now this to me is very much in line with the whole idea of conditioned arising. And it seems to me that the four truths are in fact um, uh, the first articulation of this principle in a sequence of acts. In other words, fully knowing dukkha is the condition that leads to the letting go of grasping. The letting go of grasping or craving is the condition that gives rise to the stopping of grasping and the stopping of grasping is the condition that gives rise to the creation of a way of life now here we're moving quite far from Buddhism 01 Um, this is a very uh, unorthodox way of presenting uh, the four noble truths and I believe Again, I can't demonstrate this completely, but I have a sense that these four titles, you know, there is suffering, craving is the origin of suffering, uh, nirvana is the cessation of suffering, and the path leads to the end of suffering. I suspect those titles were added on later. Um, There is some... uh, Philological, uh, uh, there is some philological evidence for that. In other words, scholars have pointed out there are grammatic problems in the structure of the text. What seems to be uh, crucial, though, and the text makes that quite clear, is that um, the first truth is basically dukkha, the second truth, craving, the third truth, stopping, the fourth truth, the path. We don't have to qualify them any further as quasi-doctrines. But they are four points, each of which invites us to act and behave in a certain way, which will have consequences that lead to the progressive unfolding of these four truths. So, in this way... The Four Noble Truths are not descriptions of reality, but they are prescriptions to do something or to act. They're, de- they're not descriptive, they are prescriptive. I personally think that's very important to see, that they are practices, they are tasks, they are not descriptions of something. As soon as you take them as descriptions, you get into all sorts of problems. Um, In fact, there's a rather curious paralleling here between Christianity and Buddhism. Uh, In Christianity, they say God is good, God is love. And then they have to spend an enormous amount of brain power trying to answer the question, well, if God is good and God is love, why is there suffering in the world? And this leads to a discipline called theodicy. Um, And it's exercised the minds of probably thousands of theologians over the last 200 years. How do you account for evil in a world that is created by a good creator? Very tricky. Buddhists have got the opposite problem. (laughs) They say life is suffering. So therefore, how do you account for people who are happy? (laughs) How do, you, uh, how do you justify happiness in a world that is supposedly just a veil of tears? You know, All conditions are dukkha, misery. The world's a miserable place. And the usual Buddhist riposte to this is, well, they're not really happy. <laughs> but that's <laughs> someone who's led a, a good, healthy, productive life has been surrounded by wonderful children, has become successful in the world, who's never once had to bother him or herself with ideas about Buddhism or anything like that. Why would one consider such people not to be happy? It seems perverse almost to somehow look for something that's wrong with that situation in order to justify one's reading of the Buddha's first noble truth. But this goes on a lot. And the problem lies in the fact, I feel, because we've mistaken what is in fact simply a suggestion, uh, uh, an encouragement to do something. You know, no suffering, fully no suffering. That's all the Buddha's saying. He's not saying life is suffering. He's saying if we attend to suffering, we can actually learn something rather important. We can actually begin to make a change in our lives. But he's not making a kind of dogmatic claim that life is, by definition, suffering. But that is so often how, in fact, it is presented. So I think it probably would be worth our while now to go through these four truths and see how they do work as a sequence of acts. Now, the first task of the first truth is uh, is to fully know dukkha. <coughs> now, to fully know dukkha, of course, begs the question, well, what do you mean by fully? Pari in Pali. Pari. Um, I don't think it comes as a terrible surprise to learn that there is suffering in life. And in fact, the Buddha uh, describes this. He says, birth is suffering, aging, sickness, death, encountering what is not dear, separation from what is dear, not getting what one wants. All of this is Dukkha. But then he concludes and he says, this psychophysical condition is Dukkha. So what does he mean, dukkha here? Um, What he's pointing to really um, is our existential condition. And he's suggesting that we begin to consider that existential condition more fully. We know that we were born, we know we're probably going to get sick, probably going to get old, and we know for sure that we're going to drop dead one day. And that's not something we find terribly appealing and so a lot of life is spent in a way as a kind of flight or um, um, distraction from the existential condition and what we uh, do very often is what he described in the text yesterday is that we secure ourselves to a certain place, a certain identity, something relatively fixed and stable in the world. And by doing so, we then can uh, anesthetize ourselves or or close off or blind ourselves from seeing the actual condition that we are in. So to fully know dukkha is really to embrace our existential condition. But how do you do that? Well, this, I think, is where um, reflection Meditation and also, basically, life's own lessons come into play. That there are moments in our existence where we do experience great grief, where we do um, suffer great uh, discomfort and pain and sickness, when those close to us do die. And in those moments, again, what do we do? To what extent do we simply try to, 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 to neutralize uh, those situations? Uh, or to what extent do we heed their message? One of the uh, classical ways in which these four sights of the Buddha, when he goes outside the palace and he sees a sick person, an old person, and a corpse, these Sites are sometimes called the heavenly messengers. In other words, they're they're teachings in their own right. They're telling us something, they're showing us something about the condition we are in. And we are free to choose to heed that or not. We can ignore it or cover it up. Our society is quite good at that, at putting these things out of sight, out of mind in hospitals, old-age homes, morgues. And when we do see a corpse, it's usually dressed up and made up to look as though the person's just gone to sleep. In other words, we don't particularly want to heed those messages. Rather than look old, we get a facelift, and so on. But that in itself, though those experiences are going to be relatively few and far between, To fully know this, therefore, requires that we actually make a concerted um, effort to attend uh, to these features of our experience. And this can be done through reflection, but also through a cultivation of um, another quality of awareness, a kind of existential awareness. And this is what I feel the practice of mindfulness in its deepest sense is about. Mindfulness is not just about getting a a, a cool, detached distance and clarity about what's going on, less reactive state of mind. But mindfulness, um, particularly in conjunction with concentration, brings us into another kind of sensibility, we become that much more sensitized to our existential condition. So when we sit on this cushion or walk outside, we're really choosing to confront uh, the reality of our lives without any kind of a qualification. We first need to try to still our attention so we're not caught up in endless wandering thoughts and so forth and so on. But also, once we've stabilized attention, we need to begin to pay attention to certain features of our experience, and this is where the practice of vipassana begins. Vipassana literally means uh, intense looking. Passana means to see or to look. V is an intensifier. It got a ratchets the seeing up a bit. And what we pay attention to are anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence, the fact that what we're experiencing is changing. Uh, Dukkha, in the sense that uh, what we experience cannot be relied upon to provide any final kind of well-being. That's how I would understand it. It doesn't mean that we start noticing that it's terribly painful. Because it's not, most of the time. It's perfectly nice. It's okay, it's fine. It's rather agreeable to sit still doing nothing. might be a bit boring sometimes, but when we get used to it, when we develop that particular skill, it's actually pretty agreeable. And in fact, in the accounts of, of meditation, they even speak of, of, of rapture, enjoyment. It's a wonderful thing to do. So where's the dukkha? <laughs> the, the, the point is again not to try to seek out pain and it's certainly got nothing to do with actually inflicting pain although sometimes being told to sit to, for 45 minutes without moving sounds a bit like that but that's not the point the point is to, uh, to start attending to certain f- Elements of our experience that we habitually ignore or deny or overlook. That's the difficult bit. And I think one of the reasons we so often um, find it uh, challenging to meditate, to sit still, is because it brings us rather too uncomfortably close to our condition when we really start to uh, not just hold the the idea uh, that this is impermanent, but when we begin to feel impermanence, when we begin to experience the breath and the sensations in the body and the heartbeat and the pulse, and when we really notice the, the, uh, the, the transient nature of this, the fact that it's constantly moving, it's in motion, we begin to realise that our life is essentially running out. That this is insight into entropy. That we are in an entropic situation. And um, and again, something we don't really... In our culture, at least, we're not really encouraged to pay much attention to that. It's there. I think it's Boyle's second law of thermodynamics. But... (laughs) we don't, in school at least, meditate on entropy as it's actually witnessable here and now, first-hand. (laughs) (coughs) And that's what's going on, though. And so we can see here that the dukkha is a kind of generic term, and I'm not translating it. I think to translate it as suffering is making things already unclear we'll leave it simply as dukkha but dukkha consists of anicca anatta and dukkha anicca impermanence anatta and then when we get you know close into that pulse of our uh, of our embodied existence and we realize again something that's kind of weird the the thing that we spend most of our time thinking about, worrying about, and being proud about, namely me, (laughs) is actually unfindable. And instead, we encounter just this endless uh, pouring (coughs) forth of sensations and feelings and thoughts and emotions and memories and plans, all of this stuff that just comes welling up, sort of, you know, endlessly, And yet, there's nothing in it that we can really say, oh, that's that bit there, that's me. That's Stephen, that's that funny little feeling I've got down here. And there's somewhere where William James says something quite similar. He says, when I look for myself in my body, in my experience, what I find is a funny feeling in the back of my throat. I think that's very perceptive. And it's when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, we used to do a very similar meditation where we would systematically go through the body in meditation trying to locate me. (laughs) And it's odd because, you know, if you listen to your thoughts, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, aren't I clever, aren't I an idiot or whatever, um, we assume the existence of some central me. And yet when we try to pin it down there's there's nothing you can put your finger on as the Dalai Lama would say Uh, there's a passage in a text called the Ratnavali which is attributed to Nagarjuna and he says it's a bit like in a desert you see in the distance a beautiful oasis with palm trees and camels and you know McDonald's or whatever nowadays and you head off towards it but the closer you get the more it vanishes. It's a mirage. So from a certain distance, it, it seems terribly self-evidently there. When you apply a little bit of, of attention, what seems so real actually dissolves. It's very strange. So the, the practice of the first noble truth, a fully knowing dukkha, is at least in the context that we're in uh, on this retreat is the practice of attending to those uh, fundamental features of our experience that we tend not to notice or even try to deny sometimes. Uh, and that's where the beginning of this sensibility um, that the Buddha is speaking of begins to take root. In other words, as he says in his own awakening, he says, those who love, delight and revel in their place fail to see this ground. And the ground, in this case, what well, he calls it conditioned arising, but basically it's this phenomenal process of physical, mental, emotional uh, life continuously unfolding. And although he calls it a tanam, a ground, it's of course very much not like a ground. It's a very groundless kind of ground. Nothing stands still. Nothing is me. Nothing lasts. Everything shifts and changes. Things occur unpredictably, unplanned for, out of our control. It's very contingent upon so much and that is the kind of ground on which uh, this way of life this Eightfold Path uh, tries to live from so in other words the Buddha's awakening is a shift in perspective from a fixed place to a fluid ground and the Buddha's arguing that if we wish to flourish as human beings we need to somehow uh, root ourselves in the, um, the very facts of our life. We need to open our minds and our hearts to dukkha, anicca, anatta, these three marks of being, and begin to live from that perspective rather than the perspective of our ego identity, me, that we try to fix and secure and defend and endorse constantly. Now, the way that I understand this is that as we become more and more attuned, whether it's through meditation or through life experience or through study and reflection on these matters, that that begins to change our relationship to the world. It's very difficult if we really, really recognized and felt that the world is changing, that the world is dukkha, that the world is not intrinsically me or mine, to then treat it as a place where I can get what I want and get rid of what I don't like, manipulate and somehow control this fluid world in a way that suits me. And yet, of course, we spend an awful lot of time doing that. And to some degree, it's necessary. That's how we function in the world. That's how we achieve a certain... Uh, security. Uh, We have enough to eat and we have a nice place to live and so on. These things are necessary and there's no suggestion that they're not. In fact, I think Martin mentioned yesterday uh, this idea of the Buddha called the Arya Gota, the noble family, the noble lineage. It's actually the origin of the idea of Buddha nature, believe it or not. And there the Buddha recognizes that before you can embark upon a spiritual life you need to be content with your food your lodging and your clothing in other words he's he's you know he recognizes that we need to secure our material existence at least in a simple way before we can have sufficient foundation Uh, to begin to pursue these kinds of questions. So again, the implication, I think, is that a Buddhist community or a Buddhist society needs to give considerable attention to the provision of these necessities. And I think the challenge in our consumer society is the challenge is, what is a necessity and what is simply an unnecessary indulgence? Do I really need... Um, you, know, you select any consumer durable or not and again it's not an easy question to answer but I think it's an important question for both our individual lives and also for our, our communal lives so my sense is that the more that we begin to relate to the <clears throat> world from this perspective certain old habits of mind begin to fall away we no longer um, are going to uh, feel that our life is about pursuing short-term goals and getting a certain degree of, of, of pleasure or warding off people in our lives that we don't like, trying to control our situation. Because we know full well that we can achieve these goals, but very often after the initial euphoria has worn off, we find ourselves in yet another condition of lack. And this, of course, is craving. Craving is premised on the idea that something is missing. You can only grasp or crave or or yearn for something if you feel you don't have it. And it seems that what the Buddha is pointing to is within a fluid, uh, changing, uh, dukkha written impersonal world there's always going you're going to get to a point where you feel something is missing that whatever you construct whatever you uh, achieve at a certain point it can begin to feel a bit hollow and so you try to fill that gap you fill that hole by getting this or getting rid of that or whatever so the buddha's addressing a strategy whereby we can go beyond that kind of repetitive and cyclical uh, behavior and ground ourselves more uh, realistically and truthfully in our human condition. And of course this is not just something that concerns me, but as you open yourself to the reality of dukkha, you realize that we all suffer that as one extends one's attention to the world and, and has as a, as a practice, in a way, the, 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 the noticing and the attending to suffering, you begin to see how, how infinite it is in this world in which we live. We only have to open up the newspaper or switch on the TV, and the chances are they're not telling us good news. Something's wrong somewhere. So again, that too can be incorporated into the refining of such a sensibility. So my sense is that as we practice this uh, embracing or opening our minds and hearts to dukkha, craving and grasping begin to fall away of their own accord. When it says let go of grasping, this is not, I think, a willful act because I don't think you can do that you've probably had meditation teachers tell you when you come to see them well, with some problem I can't, I've got this terrible worry in my mind about what's going on here in this situation and the teacher will say well just let go yeah. as though all you have to do is throw the off switch but of course it doesn't work like that in fact sometimes trying to push this stuff away simply makes it worse The principle the Buddha would suggest is we need to understand what are the conditions that give rise to such craving, such grasping, such attachment, and work there. And the root condition would be because we see the world in a certain way. We see the world as basically a place for me getting what I want. If we stop seeing it in that way, if we start to train ourselves to see it, as a fluid, changing, contingent and and suffering place, we'll begin to relate to it differently. But this kind of change has to go on quite deep within ourselves if it's to be really transformative. And that's why this practice is so difficult at times and seems to require so much effort. It's counterintuitive. It goes against the stream of our usual habitual behavior. But we can begin to, I think, quite clearly see how when these habits of mind lose their their raison d'être, then we can find more and more moments at which they're no longer the craving and the grasping and the fearing and the disliking, no longer become what are determining in our behavior. They might still keep popping up, almost invariably. They're, I would feel, very much the legacy of our evolution. They're they're going to be around for a while, for the rest of our lives, probably. But we don't have to do their bidding. We're free to not be prompted and follow their demands. And it's in such moments, I feel, that we can talk of, um, of a kind of stopping. Whether the craving or the grasping literally stops and we experience a deep inner calm and peace. Nibbana is often spoken of as peace. Or whether we find a spaciousness of mind in which we are no longer um, the victims of our neurotic thoughts and habits, doesn't really make much difference. In both cases, we've achieved a degree of freedom from their power. And that's Nibbana. And the Buddha is, is a good enough psychologist to realize that just because you have that experience once, that doesn't mean it'll last forever. In fact, it might be very brief. And here we get the ideas of Satori and Kensho, of breakthrough. These are sort of illuminating moments of insight, not intellectual but really visceral, that do make a difference to how we feel about ourselves in a very significant way. And it's there that the path begins, that the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth, um, is opened up um, in those moments of peace, of stopping, of openness, of spaciousness. So in other words, Nibbana in this model is not the end of the path, it's the beginning. That's where it starts. And that's where we'll stop. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll carry on with this tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you for listening.